you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to at least start out there in Genesis chapter 1. We want to continue in this series that we've been doing on cultivating community. <clears throat> I had um, the privilege of growing up as a pastor's kid. And uh, one of the privileges that that afforded me was to be able to begin preaching at a very young age. I think I preached my first sermon when I was 13. Um, I don't know if I would call it a sermon now, looking back on it. Please, no one look for that sermon. It's probably rather embarrassing. But uh, I remember distinctly as I was preparing for this message, I remember um, during my teenage years preaching a message about being authentic. And as I was preparing for that message, and I have no idea what the text was or what the points were or any of those things, but I do remember I had what I thought as a teenager was a great idea. That should scare most of you. All the parents in here with teenagers are going, oh no. What I thought I would do and what I did, to my shame, is uh, I, back then you, you preached in a suit and tie. That was the way we did things, my father's church and so I had on a suit and tie, but underneath my suit and tie, I had on a t-shirt, one of my favorite t-shirts, and a pair of shorts. And so as I began to preach, I dramatically and systematically removed the suit and tie and preached the rest of the message in t-shirt and shorts. I assure you, I will not be removing any clothing this morning. There's no t-shirt or shorts or anything underneath my outfit. It was a really poor illustration of being authentic. And what I want us to look at this morning is a really amazing example of authentic, deep community. In regards to cultivating community, what I want to talk to us about this morning is casting aside our costumes. Casting aside our costumes. And I want to look at four things together. One, I want to look at our beginning. Then I want to look at our reality. I want to look at our answer. And then our pathway forward. Our beginning, our reality, our answer, and our pathway forward. So obviously, if we're starting with our beginning, that's why we are in Genesis. I want to submit two things to you this morning that you and I were created out of community for community. You and I were created out of community for community. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, as God comes to the pinnacle, as it were, of his creation work, and he creates the human race, he says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So here you have God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, having existed in perfect community for all of eternity past, creating out of community man. So you and I were created out of community, but not only were we created out of community, we were created for community. In that same passage, we're told that we were made in the image of God. Part of that image bearing is that we were created to have a relationship, to live in community with God. That's part of our image bearing. So we're created out of community, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit creating mankind. But we are created 
also for community. And first of all, that was with God. To walk in fellowship with Him. But we see that's not it. Because as we walk through the creation story, right? You have, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then we get to the first, it's not good. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. And God says it is not good for man, what? To be alone. And so he creates Eve, he creates a helper, he creates, uh, uh, he creates community. Not just community with God, but now community with, an, with other image bearers. So you and I are created out of community for community. Brad House, who wrote a, has written a book called Community, Taking Your Small Groups Off of Life Support, says this, No one really debates the need for people to exist within community. It is not merely a Christian understanding, it is a human understanding. But belonging in and of itself will never be enough. Hanging the need for community on belonging is like hanging the need for water on thirst. The need for both is deeper. Thirst is a a symptom of a deeper design that the body was created to require water to survive. While we can technically survive without community, we do not function properly without it. The deeper need for community is embedded in the very fabric of who we are. It is part of our design. You and I were created for community. And so one of the most amazing parts of the creation story, as far as I'm concerned, comes at the end of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25. I can accept a God who is so awesome and so big, He can create the whole universe in six literal days. That doesn't faze me. What blows my mind is that as you come to the end of Genesis chapter 2, you get this statement made, and it is this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the best community that mankind has ever known. When I read this, I don't take this just to be kind of a, a, a comment on, on the stage setting. Oh, by the way, they happened to be naked and they weren't embarrassed about it. No, this is way, way deeper than that. The physical nakedness is symbolic of an absolute and total openness that Adam and Eve had both before one another and before God Almighty. They had nothing to be ashamed of. They had no reason to cover up. That reality is our, was our beginning. That's where the human race started. That's what we were intended for. That's the type of community we were created for. Both naked and unashamed. They weren't ashamed because they had no guilt. Now, I'm going to use these two words of guilt and shame throughout, and I I give you a quick definition that comes from David Powelson that I think is, is very helpful. Guilt is an awareness of failure against a standard. Guilt is an awareness of failure against a standard. As to where shame, David Powelson says, is an awareness of failure in the eyes of a group. Shame is an awareness of failure in the eyes of a group. So a great example of this would be a courtroom setting, right? You're looking to the judge 
and the judge is hopefully going to either pronounce you innocent or guilty based upon the standard of the law. But you're looking to that judge, guy, girl, whoever it is, wearing that robe thing, and they're going to say, guilty, not guilty, and that's the standard you're being held to. But shame is what you will feel in the eyes of all those who are sitting in the courtroom as the charges against you are read and either you plead guilty or guilty is pronounced upon you. You will feel that sense of shame in their eyes. Ed Welch said that shame is the container of guilt. Adam and Eve in our beginning were there naked and totally unashamed because they had no guilt and they had no reason to cover up. It's difficult for us to imagine that, almost completely impossible for us to imagine that. We've all heard it used, the example used before. What if our thoughts from this past week were splashed across the screen? What if somebody had cameras in our house this week, or just in our car for that matter, and heard the things we said and the suggestions that we made to the other drivers on the road? What if somebody was able right now to hack into our phone and begin displaying every website we had visited, every text that we sent, everything we posted on social media? What if it all came flashing in front of us? We would cringe. But here we have Adam and Eve totally naked and absolutely unashamed. That was the beginning. Sadly, that is not our reality. In fact, I would submit to you that there's, there's probably no greater divide in all of Scripture than between Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. From the end of Genesis chapter 2, naked and unashamed, to the end of Genesis chapter 3, everything changes. Everything changes. God had given Adam and Eve a command that they were to not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we find that's exactly what they did. Eve, being tempted by Satan, took of the tree and she ate. And then offered to Adam and he ate. And if you look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7, this is what it says. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now this was not like, oh my goodness, we didn't realize this before. Never before had Adam and Eve even had a desire to clothe themselves. They had no desire to clothe themselves because they had no reason to clothe themselves. They had no reason to cover up. For the first time in the human experience, there was real guilt and real shame and there was a desire to cover up. They were looking at one another. And recognizing that they were naked and they did not like that. Their community that they shared with one another was broken. And so they sewed fig leaves together to make loincloths. And we know it wasn't just physical community. But we see almost immediately as God asked Adam what's going on. What what does he do? Well, he blames Eve on his way to ultimately blaming God for what has transpired. Their community with one another is broken, but that's not all. It's not just community with other image bearers that was broken. Verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. That's horrific. 
Folks, that is horrific. These are image bearers who are running from the God in whose image they were created. And Adam says he's running because he's afraid. Who had changed? Had God changed? Was God now this warrior on on a path to destroy? It was the same God. What had changed was Adam and he says why he was afraid. He says that he was afraid because he knew that he was naked and I hid myself. Now the interesting thing here is, is that as best I can understand, back up in verse 7, what had he done? He'd sewed fig leaves together and put them on. I'm assuming he still has those on. I don't know that Adam is just speaking here of just physical nakedness. He knew that he was naked before God Almighty. And he knew that he had real sin. He had real guilt. He had real shame. And so instead of running to the Lord, he runs from the presence of the Lord and hides himself. This is our reality. This is our reality. Our reality is that we cannot break the shackles of shame. Our reality is what Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 5. That sin came into the world through one man and death through it. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Every single one of us this morning sits here with real guilt and real shame. Now, is there such thing as false guilt and false shame? Absolutely there is. And if we had time this morning, we could talk about that. But apart from false guilt that comes from false standards and false shame that comes from unrealistic community standards that are cast upon us, Scripture tells us, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There was a standard. We all fell short of that standard. And the falling short of that standard doesn't happen in some vacuum off somewhere. It happens in everyday life as we sin against one another. We sin against God and we sin against ourselves. And so we experience the real guilt and shame that that brings upon us. Way back in Genesis chapter 6, God makes a declaration about mankind that never changes throughout Scripture. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Do you see the tension that's here? That's why we're starting all the way back in the beginning and talking about our beginning and then talking about our reality because I want you to see that here lies an extreme tension. If we're saying on one side that you and I were created for community, deep intimate community, not just, you know, not just chit chat, but we long for and were made for deep intimate community. And yet on the other hand, we have real Guilt and real shame. Inside of us there is an incredible tension. On one hand, I want to be drawn into community with God and with others. I want to know them and be known. 
because it's part of who I am, it's part of what I was created to do, and yet, because of the sin of Adam, I have a real sin nature, and I do shameful things. And so as I desire to be pulled into community, I also find inside of me a desire to pull away and cover myself. I am still tempted like Adam to hide among the trees of the garden. So how do we solve that problem? I mean, I can stand up here all day and we can go through a whole series and encourage one another to open, honest, deep community. But how do we deal with the shame and the guilt that pulls us away? Well, let's look to our answer. There is one who bore our shame, but our shame could not bear him. We read this passage this morning. Flip over to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. You're familiar with this parable of two sons. And the reason I want us to look at this parable is because as Jesus tells this story, there's really not a more shame-ridden character in all of Scripture than this prodigal son, as we've entitled him, that Jesus describes. This son does things that are so incredibly shameful, his shame spills out over off of his own life to the life of his family and his community. He is utterly shameful in every way. What does he do? Well, first of all, in Luke chapter 15, verse 12, he goes to his father and he says, Father, I, I want my inheritance. It would be equivalent to saying, I wish you were dead. I'd be better off if you were dead. And I just had your money, your resources. Give me what's coming to me. Not only does he take what's coming to him of his inheritance, but instead of investing it back in the family, which would have been the normal thing to do, or at least into that community, he takes all of that and it says in verse 13 that he goes to a faraway country, more than likely a Gentile country. And he spends all of that inheritance on reckless living, meaning unrestrained. He did basically whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, with whomever he wanted, until his resources ran out. Funny thing is, that little thing there kind of describes the way some people imagine the American dream, do they not? As long as I have the means, I should be able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want. And only as his resources run out and a famine settles in does he find himself in a place of utmost shame as he's feeding the pigs of a Gentile master. There is so much shame surrounding this young man that he does not even think it's possible to return to his father and to plead to be a son anymore. In fact, in his mind, it's going to take an intense amount of pleading just to be able to be a hired hand. And so that's what he decides to do in 
Verse 17, he says, I'll go back to my father. I'll plead with him. Maybe he will take me in as a hired hand. But he had to understand that entering back into that community would mean that for the rest of his life, he would be an example of utter shame. Fathers would bring their sons by and they would say, you see that boy, you don't ever be like him. Every day that his father saw him, his mother saw him, his other family members saw him, it would be a reminder of the shame that he had brought on that family and upon himself. And so the son returns. And he will return in absolute shame unless something happens. And something absolutely dramatic does happen. In verse 20 of Luke 15, we're told, Then, the, then he arose... And came to his father, speaking of the son, he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion. Now that's extraordinary in and of itself. What would likely happen is that the father would have just said that the son had died and considered him as dead and pushed him away, but this, this father is looking for his son, sees him a long way off, and then it doesn't say he was filled with rage, but that he felt compassion. Now, now see, if, if, if Jesus' parable stops right here, then what we have right here is the wisdom of the world on how to deal with guilt and shame. Because the wisdom of the world says, don't overlook one another. But when you see people in dire straits and you see them suffering, feel really bad for them. And we could probably all use that. We could probably all work this week on opening our eyes to see people around us who are dealing with real guilt and shame. We could probably all work on being moved to compassion instead of having the reaction that we would think would be justified by this father when he sees his son a long way off to say, look at him. He's suffering the consequences of his own choices. If I go to him, I'll only be enabling him. I'm going to fold my arms and sit right here and watch him pull himself up off his own bootstraps. That's what he deserves. But there's a problem. If all the father does is see his son, acknowledge that he's still alive and feel sorry for him, it does Nothing to deal with his guilt and shame. But that's not all the father does. The rest of verse 20 says, And he, the father, he ran and embraced him and kissed him. John MacArthur does a great job in his sermon on these uh, on this parable he has a two-part sermon entitled the tale of two sons and he 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 draws out how different it was for a father a man in that position to run compared to us now i mean we we wouldn't be shocked if we saw someone in a suit and tie running right i mean if you're at atlanta airport and there's some guy with his fancy little briefcase flying down the corridor of the airport, we don't all stop and go, oh, what is he doing? Right? We, oh, he's probably late for his flight, no big deal, he's running, there he goes, there he goes. And that's it. We, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't think twice about it. The whole time that my family and I lived in Senegal, I never once saw a man in traditional clothes run. 
I honked my horn at them a couple times as they took an extremely long time to get across the street. But never did I see them run. At most, you would get a kind of shuffle out of them. Because the very clothing that they wore went all the way down to their feet. It was not made to move around in. It was made to look like you a person deserving of honor. The same was true back then. They would have had robes that went all the way down to their feet. And in order to run, it would mean you'd have to bend down and grab the bottom of that robe and pull it up, thus exposing your legs, which was totally shameful. And then begin to run. And MacArthur says this, he says in the old translations of the Arabic Bible that they would not translate this word run. They were just so shocked by it that they would translate it went and hurried, but they just couldn't get run. It just was too shameful. When in actuality the word doesn't just mean run, it gives the idea of running a race. The real imagery is sprinting. This father wasn't lightly jogging towards his son. He is in a full out sprint towards his son. And it's shameful enough that he's running. It's even more shameful what he's running to. Why is he running? He's running because as his son enters that town, as he enters that city, the shame would begin to fall upon him. All of those who knew the story of this prodigal son who had done such shameful things would begin to fall on that young man. The ridicule and the mockery. And so this father runs to his son, so that the eyes move from a shameful son to an even more shameful act by this father. And his shameful act of running is only outdone by the fact that he embraces his son and kisses him. And now everyone is staring at the father And the shame that the son deserves has now fallen totally on the shoulders of the father. Friends, that's the gospel. That is the gospel. I don't know, but I trust that there are some of you in here this morning who when you were a long way off, God the Father came running to you through God the Son. He ran to you wretched and undone as you were. And He embraced you and He kissed you and He bore your shame to the cross. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds we have been healed. Listen to me this morning. Some of you won't get excited about this, but some of you might. Because Adam hid among the trees of the garden, Jesus hung on the tree of Calvary. Because Adam couldn't stand to be naked in his shame, Christ hung naked, clothed in nothing but shame. 
And for all of us who put our trust in Jesus Christ, we stand there then in that courtroom and God the Father sits on that throne and He sees all that we are. We're totally exposed before Him. And instead of hearing guilty because we've fallen short of the standard, and instead of feeling the shame as all the onlookers hear of all the horrid things that we've done, He says, forgiven, righteous, And He gets up off of that throne and He steps down and He embraces us as He would embrace His Son because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. So as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Christ Jesus. This is the foundation of biblical community. If we do not understand this foundation, then we will live permanently with the tension to draw into deep, intimate community, but also be pulled away because of our shame. But when we realize that through Christ, our shame has been born away, and that we are now a community who comes together not to boast that we have our acts together, heavens forbid, But we come together and as we unite and we're open and honest, we preach the gospel as we gather. Because we're not ashamed, not because we haven't done shameful things, but because Christ has borne our shame away. Now, I need to make something very clear. Kind of a side note, but it's important. Do not hear me saying that we serve a perpetually shameful Savior. Like I said at the beginning, Jesus bore our shame. But beloved, listen to me. Our shame could not bear Him. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 said, Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, listen to this, despising the shame. Jesus is not somewhere perpetually shamed. His shoulders were broad enough and He was great enough and His compassion for you and me was big enough that He bore our shame away. But it could not bear Him. It found no place to stick to Him. It found no belonging in Him because He was the spotless Lamb of God. He is not still hanging on that cross in shame and nakedness. He is risen. As the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And at His name, one day every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and profess that He is Lord. He is no longer clothed in shame, but exalted And has a name above all names. So now the question is then, what's our pathway forward? If this is our foundation, then what is our pathway forward? Flip over, if you will, to 1 John. 1 John. If the foundation of our community is this gospel that says you and I are both wicked and shameful... And the only way that we can gain honor is through Christ and His grace lavished upon our lives. Then what's the way forward? Well, the way forward is not putting on costumes again. 
It's not in cover-ups, but in confession. 1 John 1.9 is a verse we probably all know very well. 1 John 1.9 says, But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This confession that John is talking about here is not conversion. In fact, the verb confess is a, is a present active. It's an ongoing thing. So the life of a believer, the life of one who's found in Christ, one who bears away their guilt and shame, is not one now who proceeds forward by trying to act like they have it all together, by trying to labor in their own strength. No, this is one who lives a life of continual confession. Coming constantly and confessing. In fact, John here makes clear in verse 8 and then in verse 10 that if we say we have not sinned, or in verse 10 John says if we say we have not sinned, that we preach something, we preach an anti-gospel. It is to, it is to say something that's the exact contrary to what the gospel itself says. If we gather together Sunday mornings, and we clean ourselves up, and we pretend we have had a perfect week when we know we haven't. And we act like we've got it all together. And that's the mark of this gathering. If that's the mark of our community, then we preach a gospel contrary to that of the gospel of Christ. It is as we come together and we confess that we are broken, undone, guilty, shameful people who've only found grace in Jesus Christ that our gatherings preach the gospel. That should mark us, not cover-ups, but confession. Constant confession. Why? Well, John goes on to explain. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This doesn't mean that we just go crazy and we say, oh, okay, well, then I'm just going to keep sinning. No, no, no. No. We don't, we don't want to sin. It's not the goal here. But here's the thing. If Anyone does sin. Have a stern talking to your children before the Sunday gathering about why they cannot talk about how mommy and daddy argued during the week. No, that's not what he says. Make sure that you spend enough time in prayer and in the study of the word so that on the Sunday morning gathering you don't feel guilty when you raise your hand in song. That's like all five of us, but that's not what he says. He says, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Folks, his advocacy is not like a defense attorney in this country. He does not stand before God the Father and search for loopholes in the law of God to get you and me off on a technicality. He does not stand before God the Father and seek to diminish our culpability for what we have done. Instead, He stands before God the Father and He confesses it just as it is, but then as John goes on to say, He is the propitiation for our sins. 
He says, yes, Father, it's really that bad. Yes, it's that shameful. Yes, they deserve that guilt. And I took it all. And not just enough for us, but for the sins of the whole world. This should mark our community. We should be a community of confession. Flip over to James chapter 5. I know we're flipping all over the place, but bear with me. It's the last jump we're going to take here. James chapter 5. In James chapter 5, James is writing to a community. He's writing to a community of faith. And the context of the verse we're going to look at in verse 16 is a community that is under great suffering. And James is writing to them saying, bear up under that suffering. Be patient. That's where he starts, James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He picks that idea up again in verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Then in verse 14, he says, is anyone among you sick? Now, the way I understand the context of this passage, I do not think that James is exclusively talking here about physical sickness. That word can equally be translated weary when we're bearing up under great suffering and difficulty and feeling weak. Do we find ourselves many times getting physically sick? Certainly we can. But I don't think that's all that James has in mind here. I think he's speaking more to that weakness that falls upon us. And so James says, if there's anyone among you who's weak, who's beat down, and we find in verse 15 that these people may even be ones who have fallen into sin. Now, we can act like that's something weird and bizarre to us, but we all know that reality. The trials pour into our lives. Things that just won't give up, and we find that complaint is on the tip of our tongues 24-7. We see God blessing other people's lives, and instead of our heart rejoicing, we're like, what? God, why that? What? What are you doing? Oftentimes, as we battle... And we find ourselves weak. We find sin nipping at our heels. And so here's what James says. And this is so counter American church culture. What does he say to do when you're beaten down? When you're struggling in the midst of suffering? When you are weak and you maybe even have sins that you need to confess? And I think the image here is this individual is so weak they're struggling to pray for themselves. Who do they call? The elders. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. If there's a group of people that you want to look like you've got it all together for, it's the elders. Right? I mean, come on. I can be normal with the other guys, the other people in the church that don't wear this title elder. And certainly if you attach that teaching elder or pastor, wait a second now. Wait a second. Son, shut up. Shut up. Shut shut, shut up. Sit down. Pastors here. That's the exact opposite of what James has in mind here for the community of faith. At your weakest moment, instead of, instead of seeing and, and elders having any kind of attitude that they've got it all together and they minister out of some great strength down to these little peons who haven't obtained to their, their standards yet. No, these elders understand that they are men who are who they are, but by the grace of God. 
And when one in the body is weak and struggling and maybe even falling into sin, James says, those are the men whom you call and they will come and they will pray for you. And even confess your sins that you may be raised up again. That's totally different than I think a lot of what we think of community within the church, within the local church. Then James goes on in verse 16. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another. Now, see, I know some of you were like, when are we going to get to a one another? I thought that's what this series was about. Bam, just got there. It only took like 40 minutes. Confess your sins to one another. Now he's speaking to the community as a whole and he's saying this should characterize you. This is something you should do because again, the verb there of confession is present active. It means it's a continual thing. We ought to be a community that confesses our sins one to another. That word confession means to say about it what is true. He's not saying come and confess. Well, I got frustrated this week. I got a little stressed out. No, he's saying you confess to one another, I got angry. I got so angry with my child that I took the God-given authority he has bestowed upon me and I abused it to accomplish my purposes and not his. Why do we confess our sins to one another? Well, not because we need to seek forgiveness from one another That comes from Christ. It is His blood that continually cleanses us. But we go to one another. Why? First of all, we go to one another because many of our sins are committed against one another. And so we go and we're open and honest about what we have done and we confess our sins to one another. But we also go to one another and we confess sins because the lie of Satan to us continually is that no one will understand what you have done is totally shameful. You need to go and hide among the trees of the garden. Run from the presence of the Lord. Run from the body of Christ. Go hide. And the exact opposite is what Scripture calls us to. No, run in. Now, obviously, if we are going to confess our sins to one another and we are going to be open and honest about these types of confessions, the Sunday morning gathering would get rather awkward if we had that in the order of service, sin confession time, just stand up at random, pronounce all the wicked things you've done this week, And we'll pray for you. Folks, if the Sunday morning gathering, as you hear this series on community, if all you're thinking is that every aspect of what we're talking about needs to be packed into the Sunday morning gathering, you are going to be sorely disappointed. It can't all happen here. I am not suggesting that when we dismiss in just a little while and go over and have coffee and snacks that when someone is trying to shove a cracker into their mouth, you begin confessing all of the wickedness from this past week. It means that we need to be much more intentional in community life. It means that if our only time that we're showing up and engaging in this community is on the Sunday morning gathering, you will not experience this level of community. It won't happen. It won't happen. You've got to be engaged in community. 
that needs to be happening throughout the week. So one of the things that I would suggest to you, one of my applications to you would be this. You need to commit to engage in the small group ministry of this church. One of the reasons that we have small groups is not so we can have a, just another teaching time. It's so that we can have an intimate setting many times in people's homes where people are talking about what is going on in their lives and the things that they're dealing with and struggling with. And in the context of those groups, it opens up opportunity for deeper relationships to develop where one man can go to another and say, hey, this is where, this is where I'm really struggling. I've failed this week in this area. Will you pray for me? One lady goes to another and expresses those things. On August 20th, we'll have a, a, a meeting after Sunday school for all of those who are interested in either hosting or leading or helping facilitate small groups. Be there for that. Okay? Be downstairs in the youth room and we'll meet there right after Sunday school, August 20th. If you're not interested in leading, hosting, or facilitating, I'm going to challenge you, be praying about engaging in small groups and the small group ministry of this church. Small groups are just a means, okay? They're, they're, not, they're not an end in of themselves. The goal is to create this type of thing, but be prepared for that. The other thing that I would recommend to you, as we've talked about shame and guilt this morning, if there are lots of questions that still rattle around in your brain, Here's what I would suggest to you. I would suggest that you go to CCEF's website. CCEF's website. Look up their 2012 National Conference. You can get every talk that was done during that conference for $59. $59. Yes, it will benefit you way more than a round of golf or a new outfit. $59. Leave Netflix alone for one week. And every night you come home, you sit down and you listen through that series. I guarantee you, you will benefit from it. The last thing that I would recommend to you is that if you remember, way back when we had a conference here called Side by Side with Ed Welch. And we had all these books. We bought all these books. And some of you may have bought one of those books. The title of the book, get this, you ready? It's called Side by Side. Now some of you bought the book... And you don't even know where it is. Others of you bought the book and you know where it is. And you still haven't touched the book. Maybe a few of you have read it. Here's what I want you to do. If you bought the book, you need to pull it out and read it. If the bookmark is like halfway through the second chapter, get back in there. Okay? If you didn't purchase the book, we'll be selling the remainder of the books that we have over in building B. Five dollars. That's it. Better deal than you can get on Amazon even for the digital copy. So do that and take advantage of that. Beloved, we need this to characterize our community because it is what we were made for. We weren't made just to appreciate community as, as, as Brad House says. We weren't just made to appreciate it. We were designed for it. And so we want to engage in it. Well, let me pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, I thank you for the work of your son, Jesus Christ that we now have the possibility of engaging in real deep, meaningful community because of the work of Christ. We do not have to be ashamed. We don't have to cover up. 
I pray that this community here, this local body of believers, this church would be marked by that type of open, honest community. And that as we gather together in openness and honesty, confessing our sins and looking to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would preach as a community louder and more clearly the gospel than any one of us could by ourselves. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.